Hey, welcome back to the Not Quite Compassion podcast, and this is episode seven entitled Advocate. Uh, first off, fun fact, uh, I'm on Spotify now, don't really know how that happened, but you can you could find this podcast on Spotify. And uh, I'm not gonna we're knocking on the door of 500 plays so far, and we're only on episode seven. So that's that's encouraging. I'm I'm excited about that. It's cool to see that this has resonated with people, and um, <laughs> you're willing to follow along with these um, with these uh, these these bumblings as I'm trying to sort through what it looks like to move to become a more compassionate person. Um, yeah, it's been helpful for me, so I'm glad it's been helpful for you. So let's get into it. I got a lot of cover. Uh, we're wrapping up kind of a three parter, right? Uh, and uh, so episode seven, advocate. We talked about a couple weeks ago about being a hero, right? My friend Jerry doing a little poverty tourism, and a hero is um, is exactly that, right? Uh, he wants to be in control, wants to have the problems, Mister Fix It. A, vil- a vilifying though, a villain is the opposite, right? Someone's working against us, and we can vilify people. We can be vilified. We're defined by what we we lack when we vilify people. Or ourselves vilified. And I want to talk about advocacy uh, today. And uh, let me contrast the three. A hero is a fixer. A villain is a critic. An advocate is a helper. A hero is someone that's working for people. A villain is someone that's working against people. An advocate is someone who's working with people. And I want to share a little story from uh, the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, that I think is really, really... Um, brings us into the idea of advocacy. Um, if you know the story, it's a brilliant book by C.S. Lewis, the fourth member of the Trinity, and it's um, it's a story about these demons that are trying to like manipulate, control their human, um, your humans. I guess they're people that are trying to behind the scenes. And so there's this this younger demon that's having trouble with his one human host. And this elder demon comes over to try to help him because he's just he's struggling. So the younger demon comes to him with a complaint. He's like, I can't get this guy under control. And the older demon kind of breaks it down for him. He goes, he goes, listen, every human being um, has a, a limited amount of benevolence and malice. You can't eradicate the benevolence. So what you do then is you direct the benevolence to overseas. And that way, the malice will be directed locally, making the benevolence virtual to the person and the malice wholly real. Whew, right? Man, that's, that is, if that is not representative of, of the current evangelical American church, and so easily that we can fall into that scheme where we send money and we go out for a week long mission trip whatever it might be but we we send all of our charity all of our goods all of our help all of our benevolence across seas and then we can't stand our next door neighbor you know or uh we we're so disgusted by the homeless that live in our community wow what a juxtaposition right that there's um, the malice would be wholly real and the benevolence would remain virtual. And um, 
in his book, uh, Mark Strong, in his book, The Divine Merger, talks a little bit about this and, and puts a, actually shows it in a, in a biblical way. But he talks, starts to talk about how like anyone can get on a plane nowadays and travel and be somewhere, anywhere on the planet overnight, right? And you can drop in, parachute in, <laughs> and uh, and help for a day or help for a week, and then fly back. Like that can happen. That's that's doesn't take a lot of um, effort from us. Anyone can get on a plane. You can travel physical miles. What's more costly to us? What's not virtual? What's wholly real to us is not physical miles, but relational miles. And he cites um, the book of Acts, chapter ten, verse nineteen and twenty where Peter goes on this journey to Caesarea and earlier he, um, God had been like, Hey, uh, I love all people. And Peter's like, well, I thought you just loved the Jews. And God's like, no, you don't get me, Peter. I love all people. And that impacts Peter to the point that he, some friends knock some, some new acquaintance knock on his door and they're like, Hey, we got this guy. You want to come talk to him? And Peter's like, let's go before that. Peter would never have went, but he goes on this journey, this 30 mile journey to Caesarea to meet with this person he would have normally never met with before. And Mark Strong in his book uh, shows that there's a difference there between relational miles and physical miles. Uh, Peter's going on this very costly journey to go and build relationships with people. He's going deep rather than shallow, right? And Mark's uh, been a pastor in Portland for like 30 years. He's an African-American man that has watched his city uh, become increasingly gentrified where his small church used to be like the big building on the block and now it's surrounded by high-rise condos and specialty boutiques he used to be a um a really nice uh, barber shop around the corner now it's like this like hipster vegan cuisine i mean just the we, we went on a, a walk with him kind of around the immediate block vicinity of his building it was just incredible to see the changes and he talked about how like he's seen so many well-meaning white pastors come and go into his place into his his city and he's this guy that's just stuck it out for 30 years like just loving and going deep rather than wide or shallow and we often settle for physical miles right but we um, we struggle when it comes to relational miles. We and then therefore we end up with a virtual sense, a heroism rather than an advocacy. Shallow versus deep. And and the thing is too is when we only go shallow, when we settle for just physical miles, we're prone to see only the surface level problems in people's lives. That's that's what you see first. You're like that person doesn't need a house because they're homeless. Let's get them a house. Like <laughs> A plus B equals C, and we only see the 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 the, the, the surface level problems on someone, no wonder we define them by what they're la- they lack because we don't stick around long enough to see more. See, heroes only see the problems. Advocates look deeper and they see beauty. See, Peter made that journey. The reason why he decided to go deep is because God went deep with him. Like that's why Peter had a change of heart is because God sat down with them the night before and saw right through all of Peter's fears and inadequacies, his hero complex. And believe me, Peter had a massive hero complex. And God saw right through that like he did multiple other times in Scripture. And and, and Peter felt known. And so because God went deep with him, he decided to go deep elsewhere 
God drew out of Peter the beauty and didn't just see Peter as a problem to be solved, but a person to be loved. Peter made the journey from expert to advocate, from hero to advocate, from knowing things to being known. And have you ever been known like that? Have you ever known someone who took time to really see you? You know, beyond just the peripheral, beyond just the surface, but like really, really see you. The way Mark Strong sees the city of Portland, the way Peter saw the Gentiles, the way God saw Peter. Do, do we allow people to see us that way? Because it changes us, man. It, it, it takes down our expert facade and, and it allows us to be transformed. Uh, I'm a new parent, right? It's Lynx 9, Sawyer just turned 7. Like, I'm pretty new at this still, <laughs> figuring it out. But in that insecurity, you so want to be an expert. And I found out a few years ago that that doesn't actually change things. I can be this whole time that Link and Sawyer are being raised as an like expert dad, or I, could, or I could allow for some actual transformation to occur. And as the expert, I thought I knew the way. And I, the way for me was the way my parents did it, or my dad at least. And it was just like to get loud, to just yell. And I'm, man, I can get so loud. <laughs> I can get so loud. And, uh, and so I was like, you know, we use childish methods to solve our adult problems. And, um, and so I would just get louder than everyone else in the house. And I'd win every argument. And I would yell at my kids all the time. And eventually it just was like, I don't want to be that kind of parent that just yells at his kids to get what he wants from them. I mean, there's got to be a better way, right? I got to put away childish ways and grow up a little bit. And um, so how I changed was how I was transformed is I got off my pedestal and I actually asked the kids, can you, dad's trying to stop yelling at you. Could you help me stop? And so the next time I yell at you, would you please let me know? And it was brutal, guys. It was so brutal. Because I remember like it only took like a day or two. And um, man, I yelled at them. And then afterwards, they like let me cool down. They didn't even like use it to stick it to me, you know? They, like they actually let me cool down. And then like a half hour later, I remember Link came up to me and he's like, hey, dad. You remember you 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 said you're trying not to yell at us anymore, and you yelled at me. And um, and I just want to let you. He was so sweet about it, and it just like, oh my gosh, it ruined me in the best possible way. And it, and that wasn't the only time. I'm not gonna lie, like it took a while, but eventually I I, I stopped yelling at him. And I'm not talking about like, hey, they run in the street and a car's coming. Yeah, you're gonna yell, right? Like that's just like, get out of the way, right? But um, I'm talking about yelling over just stupid stuff, like finish your pasta, like just um, where it was way more about my insecurities than it was about their misbehavior. But I was able to be transformed. I don't I don't yell at my boys hardly any ever anymore. Um, and it was through that experience that um, that I allowed them to see me. And as they saw me. They felt a sense of empowerment 
And then from that, we were all mutually transformed. You know, like it gave them a better voice in our family, recognizing that dad's not a hero. He's not an expert. Yeah, I know some stuff they don't know. That's not like we're not. I'm the parent. They're the kid. I know that. But I don't have to lord it over them, which is exactly what Jesus is getting at. When he's like, stop trying to take the position of authority all the time. Like you, you see other models of leadership that way. Don't lead that way. Like you don't have to be that kind of leader. And uh, it reminds me of the idea of communion, guys, like the Lord's table uh, that, that Jesus, like on the night he was betrayed, right? He sat down with his friends and he's like, this is my body it was broken for you. And this is my blood that was given, shed for you. And whenever you do this, whenever you eat bread and drink wine together, whenever you have a meal together, like remember me, don't forget this. But that word communion I'm like going for it here. I told you it was the third one. I got a lot of cover. The, th- <laughs> the word communion is this word koinia, right? And it's, uh, it's yeah, it means communion, obviously. It means community. But it may be even better. It's this word of mutual participation. That we're all in this together, participating in this thing, this very holy and divine and special thing. And it's interesting when... when the teaching on communion is brought up in First Corinthians chapter eleven. Uh, Paul brings it up as like a problem because, like, in that church in Corinth, they were taking the bread and the wine and they were giving it to the rich people first, and so the rich people would have their fill of bread and probably get real drunk on the wine, and then by the time it was there was any leftovers for the poor, that they didn't have hardly anything to eat. And Peter or Paul's like pissed. He's like, no, 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 that's not. Do not forget the whole point of it. That Jesus brought us all to the tables, equal contributors to participate equally in this meal together. That's the point of it. Or as later on it says, there's no other G, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There's this sense of equality, of mutual transformation, transformation and participation at the table of God. And no wonder Jesus is like, do this in remembrance of me because we so often forget. We want to be the expert. We want to be the one that gives out the communion, not actually receive it. And we miss a sense of deep depth of relationship. And we settle for a virtual benevolence. Does that make sense? Like when we don't feel like we... Our benevolence is virtual because the way in which we've been transformed is shallow. I'll I'll break it down another way. Um, I remember several years ago at East, like the church we we attend, I was really struggling with um, whether or not the LGBTQ plus community um, should be affirmed and um, and accepted fully at the table of God or not. And um, I was studying the scriptures as a good expert would, right? <laughs> and he should, he should put the work in. But uh, that's the only way I, in which I was coming at it was just like reading lots of books and trying to become more of an expert. And I remember one day we were at church and I went up to get communion. And there was this really sweet couple, this lesbian couple there. And I extended out my hand to get the bread 
and to receive the wine from them to me. And uh, <sighs> shit, guys, it just broke me. It just because I, had, I had embarrassingly, I had only thought in terms of what I could give and how I could change them, or and I gave no thought to how I might receive. And it, it was the beginning of a, my journey, that 30-mile journey to Caesarea, that voyage from being an expert to an advocate, an expert about the homosexuality issue to an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. That was, that was my first step on the journey from hero to advocate. And uh, it, it brings to mind to me, um, even Jesus, who had no problem asking for help. You know, it would ask a woman at the well, I'm thirsty, can you give me some water? He wasn't, he wasn't being patronizing, he was actually thirsty, and he wanted her help. There's this moment in the garden of Gethsemane, when, right before he's about to get arrested and, and eventually tried and then executed. He knows it's coming. And he's stressed and he keeps asking his friends, would you stay up with me, please? Like, I'm lonely. I am stressed. Stay up with me, please. And it's in this sense of Jesus continually inviting people to know him that he gives us all the courage to be fully known. And make no mistake about it, our deepest need is to be fully known and fully loved and our deepest, deepest fear is to be fully known and fully loved. But it's only through our willingness to be known that we move from a shallow, expert way of approaching issues to an advocate diving deep into relationship. And Jesus begs us to come out of hiding so that we may better care for those around us. To not just see the surface level issues of people, but allow ourselves to see them the way we've already been seen. And, and that's that's what it comes down to is if we'll never see people that way if we don't think we've been seen that way. If we think Jesus is just some hero up in the sky that sent down and came back up and just got this clock watch running and but if we think that he's moved into the neighborhood that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and dwelt inside of us and knows us fully, then um, if we're not a, if we think of ourselves as a problem to him, man, but if we think of ourselves as a, being a person to be loved, right? This has gone off the rails, clearly, but <laughs> I just want you to know that, that um, that's, that's where the change can occur from a hero to an, to an advocate. So I want to leave you with a, a last little story to ram this point home. And it's the first story in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. And it's, it's after um, Adam and Eve have just made a mess of it. And um, they've eaten the fruit and, and they've, um, 
their eyes have been opened and they're embarrassed and they're ashamed and they hide. And isn't that our story? Like, don't get hung up on whether this literally happened because it doesn't matter. It's, it's happening. It's us. That's my story. That I am so dead scared on being known that I'll walk around acting like I'm the hero. And they're hiding and God comes looking. And I love the way the, the Bible paints it. It's like it says he, God comes looking for them in the, in the cool of the morning. Like he's just, and he, he calls out to him. He goes like, where are you? And they're hiding in these bushes, scared to death. And because um, they've created a story in their mind that, that God wants nothing to do with them, that they're a problem to him. And, and, and God calls out. He's like, where are you? But it's not a question because it's like God can see through bushes, right? <laughs> so, and it's not an accusation because they actually come out of hiding. If it was like a, where are you? Like you don't come out of hiding if you hear someone, you know, like I've done that to my kids. I've yelled at them, where are you? And I'm telling you, it doesn't work. They keep hiding. This is something different. Like this is, this is because they come out of hiding, you know? It's an invitation. And um, and the first thing God says to them is um, they're like, they're like, we, 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 were, we were naked and so we were ashamed. And God says to them, who told you that? Like you create the story about me and it's not true. You think I think you're a problem to be solved. You think I, I only see you on the surface. You think of me as this hero. I'm not. I'm an advocate. I, I'm willing to, to see you fully so that you may be fully known. And um, he's like, who told you that? And that's a question for us, right? Like, who told you that God's like that? That you're a problem to him? Because it's in allowing us to come out of hiding, to be just fully known, just naked in front of him, and say, this is who I am. And he's like, I knew all along. It's in our, our, our ability to be fully known that we can finally move out of this, um, this disguise we put on as a hero and begin to truly advocate for those who would love to be fully known as well. So I'd love for you to join me in that journey. Um, it's a long one and it's not virtual, but it's wholly real and it's not, um, physical miles, but it's relational miles. It's not shallow, but it's deep. It's, um, the, the journey that Peter went on, that Mark Strong went on and God invites all of us on. Who is God asking you to advocate for? The best way to start is to allow God to be your advocate. To choose to be fully known by him. And recognize in that moment when you're just naked, that there's nothing to be ashamed of. You are fully loved. Join me at the Lord's table, where we are all equal. 
May you experience this grace. Amen. The podcast you just heard was published with Anchor. Got something you want to say to the creator of this show? Send them a voice message using the Anchor app, free for iOS and Android.